Episode 5, EB5 Superhero Christian Trantophilus, partner at Jackson Walker. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming EB-5 superhero Christian Triantafil partner at Jackson Walker. Superhero, Christian Triantaphilus. Welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. EB5 superheroes are industry leaders like yourself who are out protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Christian, by far, you're consistently voted as everyone's favorite immigration attorney, one of the most sought-after speakers in the space, the go-to guy for any question about EB5. You're straight as an arrow, always giving level-headed advice. Christian is one of the really good guys in EB5, out protecting the path to the American dream for foreign investors and keeping regional centers compliant and in line. He's a respected colleague and friend. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate those kind words. And well, I do try to help where I can and, and, and give the right advice. EB-5 is not always uh, the easiest area to uh, navigate grayer paths, but try to make it as black and white as possible. EB-5 superhero, Christian T. Let me brag about you just a little bit. Christian is a partner leading Jackson Walker's investment immigration practice, representing foreign nationals and immigrant investors and dealing with regional centers and direct investments. In his practice, Christian regularly serves as counsel to real estate developers regional centers, private equity funds, and family offices, and advises the structuring of potential EB-5 funding by providing analysis on business plans, securities offerings, and economic reports. Christian has become particularly experienced assisting foreign nationals, entrepreneurs, and high net worth families from around the world through the EB-5 visa program, preparing and filing I-526 petitions and I-829 petitions for regional centers and direct investors. Beyond this, Christian, you're world-traveled even more than I am. Christian's fluent in English, Spanish, and, and a language that I don't even know. Can you tell me what is that language that you... Uh, that, <laughs> Let's uh, walk back to Spanish a bit. I'll put conversational. Uh, I, I am able to 
to to discuss uh, client needs in Spanish up until a point, and then uh, we, we better get it, switch over to English. But Chichewa is the other language that I am very knowledgeable about. At one point, fluent, kind of lost my practice a little bit. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the early 2000s in a country called Malawi, which is in Southeast Africa. And there they speak the Bantu-based language called Chichewa. And the Peace Corps did a great job training me. And then I was immersed in a home host family where that was the only way to communicate. So that's where that language comes from. That's really incredible. I mean, you went out at the younger age uh, to the Peace Corps. What inspired you to do that? Well, I think I think my parents did. I mean, I, I really, my mom knowingly inspired me to do it. My dad unknowingly inspired me to do it. Uh, being the son of an immigrant and going to Europe and other countries at a young age helped me understand what it means to be outside the United States. And uh, my mom always sort of sent this message of being a global citizen to me, either vocally or, or, or subliminally. And so actually, when I was graduating from high school, my mom asked whether I would even think about going to the Peace Corps directly at 18 years old. And I found out you actually have to have a bachelor's degree and it's a competitive process to get into the Peace Corps. And so I sort of revisited that idea when I graduated from college and it it all worked out. How long were you in um, Malawi? Just over two years. I did three months of training with a host family. And then um, after the three months of training, you go out into your own village and uh, live amongst the community. I was working in the health sector. So I was assigned to a small health center that I reported to just about every day. But, you, you know, I, I'm not a trained medical professional. So there was only so much I could do there. The real the real goal and the real accomplishments was to go out into the village and understand what kind of an assess or needs were out there and then try to, try to add value where you could. So I worked with uh, women's businesses to try to create income generating activities. I taught at a high school, HIV, AIDS awareness. I coached the local soccer team, played on the village soccer team, did all kinds of stuff. It was great. Well, so before you were an EV5 superhero, you were uh, a global superhero. <laughs> well, it was, it was quite the life-changing experience. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, a lot of good stuff came from that. Well, fantastic. And, and it, it looks like after law school, you you went also to uh, to The Hague? Yeah, actually during law school, uh, you know, that second that's after that second year is, is really kind of a valuable time to figure out what, where you might want to work long term. And I actually split my summer working at the ICTY, which is the criminal tribunal for uh, Yugosl- the former Yugoslavia, working as a law clerk, handling a uh, you know, basically uh, helping draft briefs for a, a, a trial for a, against a war criminal. And wow. I uh, did the second once that uh, 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 trial wrapped up, or at least my my duties, I was able to move back to New York where I lived at the time and did the second half of my summer working for a large business immigration law firm. And that's where I got my sort of real deep dive in initially into business immigration. And I kind of weighed the two experiences and I felt like I probably had a better career path in business immigration and pursued that. Well, definitely you've got an amazing career behind you and ahead of you, but it seems like you really were able to marry those two Not only are you doing immigration-based practice here in in the States, but really you get to travel globally and and interact with and and help global citizens around the world with what you do. Is that right? That's right. And uh, when I returned from the Peace Corps, I was a a legal assistant at a large corporate law firm up in New York before I ever went to law school. And one of the associates asked me what I planned to do. And I said I was going to become a lawyer. And he said, well, what kind of uh, lawyer do you want to be? And I sort of mentioned international. I look at my background and my interest in the law. And he said, well, you can be 
be an international business lawyer, but you're going to do all the deals from your desk right at your office in you know whatever city you're working with. So you better figure out a way to, to make all of that come together. And, and so I, I really liked the corporate law firm environment, the technology, the colleagues, but also wanted that international flavor. And that's when business immigration came along and particularly EB-5. When I started out as an immigration lawyer, EB-5 was still a fairly fledgling industry. I mean, this is in 2011 when I dove into EB-5 and, you know, there were only a few hundred, maybe a you know, few thousand I-526s that had been filed. And so I really took it upon myself to try to learn as much as possible. I had good mentorship and an opportunity to have a lot of client-facing uh, interactions. And when a client asks you a difficult question about EB-5 and your colleagues don't really know the answer, you have to figure out how you're going to service a client and make sure that you're providing the right advice. So, you know, there was just a lot of hard work and, and sort of dedication to the, to the, to the EB-5 space that allowed me to learn what it's like to work with with an investor who's trying to put together their source of funds and successfully navigate the EB-5 process, but also understand what it means to be an EB-5 compliant project. And that is really where if you can master those two sides of it, you feel comfortable handling the full breadth of, of EB-5. And so and in those first few years, I tried to master the investor side of it first. And then along along the way, I decided I am comfortable and knowledgeable enough at this point to advise regional centers, projects, banks who are looking to lend to projects about the ins and outs of the EB-5 program. And that's how it sort of it all melded together. We met, I think, the first time in, in New Delhi, right? And if that's you imagine, right. If you imagine a, an EB-5 superhero flying around the world, you definitely fly around the world a lot. So we're would you say you fly the most and how many days a year, let's say in 2019, before all this you know, happened, were you traveling a year? Well, it's it a great question. It, it actually, it, it, that, that sort of flows with the EB-5 industry. So, you know, let's, let's, you know, we, we go back to 2014 to 2016, 2017, you could find me in various parts of China. I was also taking trips to Brazil. And as the EB-5 industry matured and changed. If if it's 2018, 2019, I was in Vietnam probably 15 times out of the year or a year and a half or so. At the same time, I would also want to make stop-offs in India where we crossed paths and other areas that I could like Dubai or Singapore because there were clients who I was you know, working with and had an opportunity to meet in the middle of working with them and potential clients who we were trying to figure out whether we were the right match for ourselves to, to move together in the EB-5 immigration process. I would say, you know, there would be travel at least once a month. I am someone who has a family. So I do try to keep those trips as short as possible, but productive and useful. So I'm not one to take a few extra days for for sightseeing. If if we can work in something that's interesting, uh, maybe have a meeting at an interesting uh, place that is fun to have it at, great. But, you know, I was sort of, you know, I could do four days uh, on the other side of the world and be back. Family, also got to keep up with the work that that uh, you have in front of you. So that was sort of the lifestyle and the way I did business for, for quite a while. 2020 obviously changed a lot of what people are doing. I can tell you that right before COVID hit the United States, I had just been doing one of my trips literally around the globe. I, I flew over to Taiwan, then up to Ho Chi Minh City, and then I stopped off for an EB-5 conference in Dubai. And I'm telling you, as I was leaving each of those locations, countries were reporting their 
first signs of COVID. And I thought, well, I better get back to the United States. This seems to be a growing problem. And of course, that was uh, January and February of 2020. And I get back and boom, it, you know, it hits the US as well. I, had, I then canceled my uh, business trip to Mexico. Mexico was a place where I was frequently visiting in 2019, for instance, for EB-5 purposes. And so since then, um, I really have not made any international trips other than other than to Mexico, where um, you know there's easy travel right here from Houston uh, to Mexico. So that's that, that's that's been the extent of it. And so, how do you expect, given COVID 2020 and and beyond, and this maybe new hiccup we're seeing? How do you think the EB-5 process and program is going to be affected by all that in terms of your own ability to service clients and, and travel and, and uh, the way that we have evolved since then? Well, I can tell you that in terms of servicing clients, you know, I didn't always travel. Uh, before I started traveling, I worked for clients and with clients from my desk every day. So I know how to do that. And technology is better now than it was back then. And I can have video conferences. People feel comfortable, I think, more than ever about uh, conversing. And, and getting in and discussing complex issues over video conference. And I feel like since the pandemic, I would even say EB-5 investors have taken it upon themselves more than ever to seek out solutions that they might want, which is getting to the US. And so I would say that EB-5 investors are maybe even more aggressive about putting the resources around them, resources like a knowledgeable EB-5 uh, attorney, a knowledgeable EB-5 project group, and trying to understand the process as soon as they can, straight from the horse's mouth, straight from me or the project group. And so, you know, I think that's good. And the more the more we can get in front of a client and have that attorney-client relationship, the better. And the more the, pro- the client is able to interact with the project group, where the investor is investing their money, the better. So I think there are there have been those benefits arising from the sort of changed way of communication. Now, I also think there's value in consistently being able to see your EB-5 network that exists around the world. I feel fortunate that I have a, a strong network of, of trusted professionals around the world that I can continue working with while not seeing them in person on an annual or biannual uh, basis, but I sure wouldn't mind that ability to come back. So how have things changed? It sounds like that's one positive to COVID in, in that people have gotten more comfortable with this Zooming uh, solution or teleconferencing. What would you say are the challenges that are now facing the EB-5 industry? Well, the one that's been on my mind the most is just the processing times. You had SCIS also was affected and, and has you know COVID-related delays like much else that we see being affected by COVID. And I've gotten interesting feedback from USCIS itself where they will respond when I'm checking in on a case with you know almost an apologetic message, which is kind of surprising to get to say that officers have had to move to work from home and they're dealing with complications due to COVID-19, et cetera. But at the same time, I think we saw in 2021 in the US sort of a rebound in terms of trying to be, you know, increase productivity and efficiencies after adjusting to 2020. And USCIS, I really have not seen follow suit in the same way much of the, the rest of the United States has in terms of trying to get back on track. So I think, you know, again, just processing times are are severely delayed, not just in EB-5, but also other immigration areas. But but if we're focusing on EB-5, I mean, I, I just cannot stress how much I want that to be improved. You know, as someone who, who's been doing this in the EB-5 space for a decade, I, I almost don't want to say the processing times I used to see. They're, they're, they're great. 
I mean, there were, you know, three to six months to get an approval and then a green card within a year. Now, granted, the volume is much higher than it was, but USCIS is also staffed up in comparison to what the EB-5 unit was back then. So, you know, beyond that, beyond the obligatory processing times gripe, well, um, you know, existing projects navigating COVID, uh, COVID-19, trying to make sure they're surviving and moving forward. There's increased prices for, for construction. Certain industries are having to delay openings to make sure they're maximizing revenue as much as possible. And that's when getting involved and trying to help both projects and investors understand how soon does this project need to open up? How long is my window of job creation for EB-5 purposes going to be open? What is a material change? Can I instead go for another, a different hotel flag than I originally described? Because now, you know, the previous hotel is group is not comfortable with the location or the market because of COVID. So number one is processing times is a big challenge and a big gripe, as you said, obligatory gripe for everyone. Beyond the griping, what do you think is the solution for USCIS to make those processing times go down? Um, well, there are discussions about trying to reauthorize the program and within that reauthorization, actually try to get some really positive impacts into that reauthorization. And one of them would be an, a, a mandate on how quickly each I-526 and I-829 petition should be adjudicated. I'm not in those rooms, but if something along, you know, if something around six months came out of those negotiations and, 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 and into the reauthorization of the program, I think the industry and, and investors would be very happy to hear about that and, you know, help help ease some of the frustrations and anxieties that have arisen out of the recent lapse in the program and the long wait times. You know, in the past, there have been other ways that USCIS has tried like creating an online filing system for EB-5 and being able to just go ahead and have a database of project documents on hand rather than getting a huge stack. I mean, we, we print thousands of pages for each I-526 petition. And, you know, that adjudicator, I'm sure they must have places to store these. There's probably a time lost in, try- in retrieving these boxes of files, things like that. So, you know, the more that you can put it into an electronic form, the better. They did try a system where you could do that for filing. That didn't last long, but I sure wouldn't uh, mind if that if they tried to revisit that one as well. But other than that, I mean, I think I think it's going to have to be some kind of mandate. It's going to have to be someone within leadership is going to need to indicate we've got to take down this, this administrative wall that was set up in our previous administration, and we've got to start adjudicating these cases in a timely manner. And I, I you know, I do feel like leadership in place with the DHS and USCIS understands that. It sounds like that on the one hand, we've described the challenge of processing time, described the, the challenges of COVID. There's also the challenges of the instability of what we've seen in the industry. On the one hand, you could say that there's never been a better time to invest in EB-5. Now it's only $500,000 per investor. The old TEA rules are back. So it, there's much more uh, liberal definitions of what could be a TEA. So on the one hand, we could say this is the best time ever for EB-5. On the other hand, the regional center program has expired and there's uncertainty about how that will play out. So where do you see we are holding today in terms of EB-5? I uh, sort of had ra- thought things were rounding into form early this year. The, the United States was rebounding from that from the tough 2020. Investors got more accepting of the 900000 investment amount. Projects had sort of figured out how to make that work into their capital stack. And I was seeing a, a pretty solid sense of interest and, and action, real action moving forward. Then we had our bearing regional center decision uh, in which it was ruled in favor of reducing the investment amounts back down on uh, 
June 23rd of this year. And a matter of just a week later, we had the regional center program lapse due to failed unanimous consent. So you can only imagine if you're working with, I mean, I was definitely working with a number of, of, of clients at the time trying to put together their $900,000 investment prior to trying to make sure that that's filed before any kind of potential lapse was going to happen in the regional center program. And at the same time, monitoring in the background when this court decision was going to be made. And so there was a lot of uncertainty for my for my clients. And some said, I am tired of all the uncertainty. I'm going to file my petition June 1st before don't I'm not going to worry about the court decision. I'm not I'm not going to be subject to the to the lapse in the future where I can't file an I-526. So I'm going to file right now. The increased uncertainty though was that USCIS has really made it clear that everything's on hold right now ever since the lapse. And so I think one of the biggest bargaining points or one of the biggest requirements for reauthorization needs to be to make sure that already filed I-526s are grandfathered into the program and adjudicated. That will help ease, you know, a lot of investors' concerns, a lot of clients' concerns. They, you know, that that's a problem. With the lapse of the program, there's the the threat or the danger that all of those people who filed I-526s and waiting for their conditional green card approvals are now in limbo and nobody will touch them. It's not moving inside USCIS. So unless there is some kind of positive step to communicate that these have been grandfathered and they will be adjudicated, that right. creates a huge anxiety amongst those investors who have already filed. Is that what you're describing? Yes, it is. So right. Yes, exactly. So I-526s that have been filed in connection with regional centers, if they have not been adjudicated or if they have not been issued their green card yet, those are all being held in abeyance. Those are all on hold ever since July 1st. We do need communication from USCIS or or action from Congress to reauthorize the program to make sure that those are getting adjudicated and processed accordingly. Can we make an estimate of how many unadjudicated 526s there are and how many billions of dollars that equates to just back the envelope? Yeah, the number of I-526s, I recently was listening, someone had mentioned 50,000. There's a lot riding on these I-526 petitions being held in the band. And so there's a lot of uh, reasons why we think they will be grandfathered in. I mean, that alone, in terms of the sheer volume and what it represents dollar-wise for the United States, you know, there's also a lot of people who could get together and say, absolutely not. You're going to reject these or keep these on hold indefinitely. You took our filing fees and, you know, now it's time for you to do your part. And the U.S. court system could potentially see how that plays out. And I don't think the government wants to get into that. So what is a more likely scenario for how that might play out? Is there really going to ever be this concern or do you expect a quick reinstatement of the program, at least the regional center program for six to 12 months or even with the reforms to a a more robust green light there? Where do you see uh, are the possibilities for how this might play out? Well, I I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture, but I do think there's a strong possibility or strong reason to believe that the program gets reauthorized in by the end of September with with an omnibus spending bill, with the government funding bill that that will be passed or should be passed around that time. At that point, all I-526s, for instance, that have been filed are going to be under processing again. And so long as we can keep the regional center program attached with the timing of that omnibus bill, whether it's a long-term reauthorization of the program or whether it just rides for three to nine months every time the government decides to keep its lights on again and again, that means I-526s are processing. Now, there have been great points made over the last month or so, you know, or two about, look, we've 
got to get these I-526s grandfathered in. I mean, if we don't do it on by September, it's just going to come up again. And I and I and I completely get that, and I support I support that. But I'm just painting a picture of at least if it's not decoupled, the reauthorization of the regional center program is not decoupled from the from the renewal of the government funding. At least if it's always aligned with that timing, we can better rely on a smoother uh, functioning EB-5 regional center program. So here's the thought on a way that could happen. If we don't get sort of a standalone reauthorization of the program, a bill that does that, legislation that does that, perhaps fold that entire proposal into the government spending bill. And so rather it just be a paragraph saying, and the EB-5 program is going to be reauthorized, you know, it's going to be included within the spending bill. Actually, it's, you know, 40 pages of what it means to stick the EB-5 regional center program into the into the bill. And if we can do that, then there's all sorts of great stuff that could happen, including a mandate on processing times. There could be transparency and integrity measures that are worked into the program that way. And so that that is uh, something that's being looked at as an op- as an opportunity to help make sure that EB-5 petitions are being processed again, but also improve the program. Right. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the kryptonite that's um, in the Achilles heel of the program, things that we can do to work on. But what would you say are the benefits of the program and when do you advise your clients to take a serious look at EB-5? What problems does it resolve and why is it good for America? Or how else would you like to sing the praises of EB-5, why people should even consider it? Or maybe we just let it go. Right. Well, I mean, from the investor standpoint, so from the, from the family that is looking at EB-5, EB-5 results in becoming a lawful permanent resident of the United States. And it is a program in which your green card is not tied to a specific employer and it's not limiting in that sense where instead it, you know if you're investing as a investor in a regional center project for instance you are now affording the benefit to you and your family your your spouse and children under the age of 21 years old to become permanent residents that opens up job the job market for for your for your family that opens up educational opportunities and oftentimes individuals and family members don't have other opportunities, other options to become a permanent resident. And EB-5 is something that you have the resources to do. If prepared properly, if working with the right team, it can be one of the most predictable ways to become a permanent resident of the United States. If you can be patient, if you can deal with departing with your your capital for a, a, a certain amount of time that will be described in the investment terms and you're comfortable with the project that you've invested with, it can be a very predictable way to, to move your family over to the U.S. and take advantage of all the things that I mentioned, the, the job markets, the, the, the educational opportunities, retirement, social security numbers. I mean, all, all that good stuff that comes with it. From a project developer side, you know, this is an opportunity to use financing that may be more financially appealing than other forms of financing that you would need to go out and find to develop your project. It is an opportunity to help families get over to the U.S. and at the same time create jobs in the in the United States. And it, it can be sort of another uh, a, a tool in your in your toolbox when approaching uh, new projects each time to say, all right, I have experience with raising EB-5 money. Should I do this again? Maybe not. Maybe it's not the right fit. Or maybe now interest rates are low and I can just use conventional financing to get this done. But it really, uh, I mean, I've had I've had clients who do that. They pick and choose as they see fit where EB-5 needs to needs to be layered into the to the capital stack. 
I really would like to hear one of your superhero stories. Give me an example of one of your cases, which was very challenging. Maybe you were facing an RFE or a denial and almost thought it was all lost. And you and your team of EV5 superheroes were really able to pull it off and help that client get across the finish line. Okay, sure. I can do that. I had a family of three children above the age of 21, but not much more than that, come to me with an issue. They were approaching their I-829 filing dates, meaning their uh, conditional green cards were expiring, and they needed to file their I-829 petition to convert those green cards into uh, non-conditional green cards and complete the EB-5 process. Well, in order to do that, you need to show that 10 new jobs were indeed created on behalf of the investor in the project that they invested in. And this family just so happened to put all three children into one single direct EB-5 business. And that business had created maybe three or four jobs when they needed 30. Wow. And it was still running. It was still trying. It was still making efforts to grow. And there was reason to believe that if the stars aligned, that it could succeed one day. And so they said, what do we do? How how do we keep our children? I mean, they're by now they're all living in the US. You know, they had they really were not familiar with their home country. Um, but they were facing a potential I-829 denial and potential you know, removal from the United States. So we, we, we did an assessment in terms of, you know, uh, financially, what could they afford to do? And they did have resources to put together another $500,000 for each one of the children. At the same time, we needed to keep these individuals in status. And we needed to make a good faith effort in filing an I-829 petition. So we put together I-829 petitions that we felt were good faith effort in demonstrating that you know, money had been invested into the project, project had struggled, but efforts were being made to recover the project and continue to create jobs. At the same time, these individuals uh, worked with me to prepare a new source of funds and decided that they're going to invest and file new I-526 petitions in regional center projects. Projects. And so we filed the I-29 petitions to keep them in the U.S. and demonstrate that job creation was being attempted. And we also filed new I-526 petitions as a backup plan, knowing that that backup plan may very well be needed. And so the I-526 petitions were adjudicated prior to the I-29 petitions being adjudicated. Or denied. Or denied. Uh, exactly. And when those I-526s were approved, we then, you know, you cannot adjust somebody in the U.S. from permanent resident to permanent resident. Because remember, they were already green card holders. So I, I, I communicated with the U.S. consulate abroad where they, they're from and said, look, here's the situation here. These are permanent residents, conditional permanent residents, and now they have eligibility to get a new green card. Well, you have to abandon your permanent resident status to not be a permanent resident. So we were able to arrange for this family to fly out and attend uh, contra appointments to first abandon their permanent resident status, then get their new EB-5 visas on the same day, and, and then return to the United States to get their newly issued conditional green cards via the regional center program. Of course, at the same time, we also had to withdraw the IH-9 petitions. And well, we did that. Really, it was really the regional center program that saved the day. Not to mention your very good advice. And so we know that the jobs have been created under the regional center program and their IH-9s uh, 
should be successfully approved. So those, those kids are going to have a long-term life in the U.S. as a result. That's fantastic. That's really incredible. And I think those who are in the industry and even those who are, are learning about the industry are going to be you know, very appreciative of the the pivot that you pulled off. It's pretty remarkable. You have to be very creative as you're riding this EB-5 roller coaster about how to get things done. So I think you did that expertly. Yeah. And, you know, some nerves were involved. Will, will, will the consulate, you know, uh, cooperate? You know, the family didn't want these, the, you know, everyone stuck in, in, the, in their, in their uh, country of birth that they were not familiar with. But in the end, you know, it, it, it worked out successfully. So yeah, we were, I was, I'll remember that one for a long time. Other, other, I mean, there are other types of stories, but that's just one where I thought it was pretty interesting and, and was happy to see it all play out the way it did. The unique quality about EB-5 is that really each EB-5 case is a, is a family story and very unique and specific. And I think it takes an adept and empathetic and sympathetic, intelligent uh, attorney like yourself to really help the families navigate through this EB-5 process, which can really mean the, the whole difference to their future. Well, thank you. I mean, maybe it was, maybe it's just the way I got involved. I, the very first family I worked with from Egypt had left its home country, their home country sort of showed up in Houston, sort of eyes wide open, trying to figure out how to make things work, trying to work with me on their source of funds, couldn't believe my requests that I was making of them. And I remember them driving to the bank that day to finally be ready to wire their EB-5 investment. You know, the wife was on the phone with me, just frankly did not speak much English. And I certainly don't speak any Arabic. And we were just working it out. And they, you know, were able to make their transfer and get the documents I needed. And it just, it was a good way to understand what it takes to be in this industry and to do that early Early on, and uh, you know, uh, I think from not not all cases are like that. There are some clients who really provide your checklist. They upload the documents. They follow it to a T. They know exactly the transfer they're making. They know exactly what the investment terms are of their documents, and they and they sign and we file their petition. And it's all done. But like you're saying, each case is different. Each family is different. Christian, you're helping families around the world with EB five with all the other immigration counsel you're giving. You're really one of the EB five superheroes, and you have a team of superheroes with you at uh, Jackson Walker. Tell us about about you and your team and where we can find find you and where we can learn more about all the good things that you're doing. Sure. Well, I certainly do have a great team. I really, really enjoy the group we've got. Um, Jackson Walker in general is a law firm, significant presence in Texas, great resources, great name, and just an excellent platform to be working with. But the team within Jackson Walker, I, the, the, the business immigration team, is a group of individuals whom I've worked with for a very long time. Uh, one of them, Catherine Yen, who's a, a very experienced EB-5 attorney also a fully trained immigration attorney. We started out together uh, 10 years ago in the EB-5 space and continue to work together. Sang Shin, an employment-based immigration lawyer, I also started out with a, a decade ago, really kind of your jack of all trades when it comes to employment immigration. We've got a foreign lawyer as well in our Austin office who works with many of my Spanish-speaking clients, whether it's an EB-5 or an E-2 or an L-1 startup company. And another great young attorney right here in Houston who handles really a lot of the the client facing needs that we needed to when you know we're either just overbooked or trying to make sure we're drafting a successful RFE so she's also been a significantly valuable to the team and then not to mention the paralegals and the legal assistance that we've got so we're you know we're about a 12 member team at this point and that's kind of the size that I that I've always tried to keep whether we're busy or 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 not as busy I think that's a solid number because we're always 
things to do in EB-5 and immigration. If it's not working with a new client, it's answering questions from an existing client. Clients are not asking questions. You might have a request for evidence or something that you need to be communicating with the government about. So plenty of ways to stay busy in this field. Well, I think that's really one of the reasons that you're one of the top EB-5 immigration attorneys and also one of the most sought after immigration attorneys is because you really give that focus and uh, care to each case. I know your team is all very, very dedicated to helping uh, clients achieve their goals. Yeah, well, certainly try to be and appreciate the appreciate the observation. Much, much appreciated. Well, Christian, thank you so much for uh, coming with us today to tell us a little bit more about the EB-5 story and your own personal story. And we look forward to seeing great things from you and your team at Jackson Walker and onward and upward with EB-5. Absolutely, Matt. Appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks a lot. That's a wrap. Christian Triantaphilis and other EB-5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB-5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB-5 Superhero. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB-5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com.